I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Psychoactive Swap. I know you haven't heard from us in a while, but we've been busy. There's a lot going on behind the scenes. We're all hard at work on some new stories, making episodes on sex work, prescription pill diversion, and how prohibition affects us on the job. You can help by donating to us at patreon.com slash crackdownpod. And for everyone who's given dollars to get us this far, thank you very much. So while we're working on these new episodes, we've done a swap with another podcast. Crackdown and the Psychoactive podcast are swapping episodes. They played our episode about the Drug User Liberation Front, and we're playing their episode, and it's an interview with me. Ethan Nadelman is the host of the Psychoactive podcast. 22 years ago, Ethan helped create the Drug Policy Alliance in the U.S., The Drug Policy Alliance has fought for marijuana legalization, drug sentencing reform, and clean syringe access. They were a big part of the reason why Oregon voted to decriminalize drug possession in 2020. In our conversation, we talk about my life as a young drug user, how I got involved in organizing against the drug war, and how maybe Canada gets too much credit for harm reduction. Crackdown producer Alexander Kim has replaced all of the ads that were in the Psychoactive podcast with random anti-drug PSAs. So uh, I hope you like that. Here's the episode. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs, But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. My guest today is someone I don't think I've ever met, but he's doing remarkable work in the city of Vancouver and province of British Columbia in Canada. His name is Garth Mullins, and he's become well-known as host of an award-winning podcast called Crackdown. What makes his podcast somewhat unique is that he and his co-producers are themselves drug users and drug user organizers and activists. They've mostly working with Van Du which is an acronym for the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, perhaps the longest-standing drug user organization in North America. So, Garth, thank you ever so much for joining me today on Psychoactive. Ethan, it's a great privilege to be here. I've been an admirer of your work for a a long time, and um, that's nice to talk to you. Okay, well, 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 thank you. Thank you very much. Garth, let me just start by asking, why did you start this podcast a few years ago? I'm an old school dope fiend, you know, that's the story of my life is I've been on some kind of opioid pretty much every day of my adult life or most of them. And for a long time, that was heroin. And for a while now, it's been methadone and uh, everything in between. And I came to understand our struggle just through my own personal experience with police 
the different institutions that you run into if you're a drug user, and also with losing so many people across my whole life. Like maybe half the people I came up with are gone. And I saw the way that the world looked at us and saw us uh, in popular culture and journalism. And I was like, those aren't the people around me. Those aren't the people that I know. The people that I know are actually most of the time pretty rational and smart and kind of trying to make their way and then trying to look out for each other. And I knew a little bit about how to make podcasts and make radio because I played in punk bands for a long time. When you do that, you got to kind of fix your own gear and run your own sound and sometimes make your own records. So um, it seemed like this could be my contribution. We don't ever really talk about the drugs themselves very much. So if you want to tune in and hear what it's like to get high on um, LSD or what it's like to be, you know, not in on heroin, we don't really get there exactly. Our podcast is like about the war, hmm. you know? So it's, it's, if we're talking about a drug war, we really talk about the war part of it, I guess a lot more and what our side is doing to organize ourselves in that war. This is a podcast about this giant terrible conflict that spans the world, which is an impossibly large subject, but it's actually just about me and a few of my friends and what's going on with them and how we're trying to organize in our little part of it. And I always think, why would people care very much about Vancouver? Mm -hmm. We should be making this more universal or something. But what I have noticed is what happens in this town will happen everywhere else eventually. And I'm not quite sure why that is yet, but we had fentanyl contaminated drugs in 2013, 2014, that was the first time I was noticing it. You know, we had massive waves of heroin and stuff before a lot of other places in Canada and the U.S., you know, and we're getting stuff now, benzodiazepine contamination into the stuff that's sold as opioids over the last couple of years. And I'm starting to hear reports of that from other places in the U.S. too. For, so for some reason to do with supply chain or trade patterns or something, what happens to us here is going to happen to other people or there's a good chance of it. I mean, this is a collective enterprise with people at Vandu, other drug users. I know it won an award for, you know, basically an investigative journalism that exposed the fact that the government had replaced the traditional effective form of methadone with another form of methadone that was cheaper but wasn't working as well, and they denied it wasn't working as well. So, Garth, I mean, when you launched this podcast, was it the emergence of fentanyl and the and the gross increase in overdose fatalities that prompted you to do this or something else? It was just a coincidence of different events. You know, um, I was uh, just an activist at Vandu. I met this guy, Dr. Ryan McNeil, who's in Yale now, but it was UBC at the time. Um, we were going around to lobby government on small changes to methadone policy. And, you know, we'd go into these rooms with government and try and tell them this or that. Me and other people from the BC Association of People on Methadone would say our piece. Ryan would present the research. And we leave the rooms and we go, wow, this is not convincing them. We're not really getting anywhere, but maybe it'd make an interesting podcast. And Ryan's like, oh yeah, we could do that. I, I think we could do that. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, we got a hold of a, a few of our uh, favorite activists, people that I'd worked with for a long time. And we sat down and said, do we want to do this? Do we need this? Is this something the drug user movement wants? And the very first question was, what the fuck is a podcast? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I said, oh, it's just like radio shoved in the computer, you know? And uh, they're like, yeah, we, I mean, we always want to tell our story and we always want to embrace uh, whatever technology gets it out the door that way. 
Uh, and so the, the we listened to a few different uh, ways that we could do it. We had dis discussions on the kind of topics we wanted to cover and the kind of research we wanted to mobilize. I found some people in Vancouver who who had also done um, some audio reporting on uh, the heroin uh, prescription heroin uh, project, and uh, we got all got together and started making the podcast. But man, the thing that really I realized is. I couldn't just like stand in the sidelines and hold the mic and interview people and stuff. I had to share some of myself too, you know, like that's the job of the host. And I kind of, maybe I didn't think about that very much starting mm -hmm. out. Cause I didn't have like this ability to explain my life or whatever, because I, I, like I said, I've been like really carrying a lot of shame about it. So the podcast helped me understand a little bit more uh, who I am and be okay to talk about myself and those parts of my life. And that's been a real great gift. You know, like I, I never thought that would come out of it. You know, I thought, oh, this would be great. I'll get to interview all these cool people. I'll get to profile a bunch of activists that I know who really deserve the spotlight. But I never thought I'd be talking these little vignettes and anecdotes from my own life, you know, um, and it's been good that way. Yeah, I think we're having very similar experiences uh, hosting our podcast. And I'll tell you that your answer to the question, what's a podcast, is the exact same that I give to my 90-year-old mom. Well, that's good. You know, I mean, it is it is funny, right? But um, yeah. in Canada, one in five people doesn't really have good internet access. So, like, we do listening parties. And so it's really legit that lots of people don't know what a podcast is because why would you? Um, so we just play episodes of the podcast out loud at Vandu and people can come and listen and then have a discussion afterwards. And I found out from people just writing me that people all over the place are doing that. And I didn't even know about it. Like someone in Toronto was having, I think they were calling it crafts and crackdown where they have snacks and do knitting or like glue things and, and listen and then have conversations. So like, yeah, I mean, if, if people want to do that, we, we did create it to be an organizing tool. And and that seems like a good use of it to me. So let me ask, I mean, how old are you now? Uh, middle age. I am like on the wrong side of 50 now, but only just. The wrong side of 50. I take that means north of 50. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that means born in the early 70s. So uh -huh. Ethan is my policy to never give out the date of birth. <laughs> it's like okay. the police have asked me too many. So I'm not being, I'm not trying to be coy like, oh, you're, you're trying to make you think I'm younger than I am. No, I'm fucking middle-aged guy. Okay. okay, okay. Well, so when you reflect back, like, you know, how did Garth Mullins land up getting involved in heroin? Was that as a teenager in your 20s? Was it in Vancouver or elsewhere? You know, where'd you grow up? What's your own thoughts reflecting back on all this about how and why you landed up there? I mean, I reckon it's like so many other people. You have some bad experiences. You're kind of alienated from your family and your community as a kid. And you start looking for what's the way back into that. And, you know, so I was like lots of other people just uh, drinking and trying different drugs when I was, uh, you know, 13, 14, 15. And then eventually, you know, I come to opioids and that seems the right thing. And then I might have even been when I was in San Francisco, when I was 19, where I first tried the opioid that was just like, ah, chef's kiss. It was black tar heroin. And I just thought, mm -hmm. fuck me. This is what everybody else is feeling all the time. Like, I just felt like, uh, like this constant sort of howling of ghosts around me, you know, like, like from, from Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, you got the little, the little arc. And when they take the lid off, all the face melting ghosts fly everywhere and get everybody. 
But this is like, this puts the lid on the Ark very nicely and keeps all the face melting ghosts safely inside. And so, yeah, I mean, I was, I was going to come back to that for sure. And I, and I did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you have this kind of addiction issues like running in the family before you? Or were you sort of the first in the family to... No, I I think we probably got it in the family. You know, I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure how it gets characterized. I, my, I mean, my family doesn't have a history that I know of with hard drugs, but um, maybe maybe drinking is more common. But I don't know that I. That's where I get it from. You know, I mm-hmm. I think uh, it's it's so hard to find the root causes. But I I sometimes think of it like this, right? Like. The world as I've known it has been getting shittier and shittier and shittier until we're almost at the end of it now. Like we got a guy in Russia with his finger on the nuclear button. Climate change is killing a lot of people here in British Columbia. 500 people died in a heat wave last summer. And, and we're, mm-hmm. we're not that big a province. Uh, we got thousands of people from toxic drugs. It's just like the whole place is going to hell. My question to other people is not why, why do I do drugs? It's like, why don't you do drugs? How are you getting away without this nice cushion of opioids to sort of take the edge off of the apocalypse? So that's what I wonder. It's, I kind of have given up trying to figure out what my issue is, but what's everybody else's? You know, I I read that you had grown up initially, um, like not in Vancouver or greater Vancouver area, but like in the Northwest Territory. I mean, this sort of remote part of North America. Yeah. I mean, I was a, I was a kid in the seventies in, in Yellowknife, which is North of 60, you know, it's almost, it's the subarctic, but I loved it there. You know, I had a really, I had, I had a good childhood there. You know, I, I did like it. Uh, yeah. So that was, that's definitely, yeah. it's definitely a, it's a good place for a kid, you know, a small town before you get too old, you can like ride your bike all over the place with the other kids. And, and, uh, you know, it was a mining town. So, uh, there was lots of different kind of characters in that place. I, I liked it. Yeah. But I also also think of those kind of places. Like if you think about where, generally speaking, are the worst alcohol problems in the world, the worst relationships with booze. And it's typically the closer you are to the Arctic, the worse the problems with booze. Right? You look at Russia, Scandinavia, Alaska, northern Canada, you know, wherever it's kind of light 22 hours a day and then dark 22 hours a day. And alcohol just seems to play some particular role in societies like that. I mean, I think that's true. um, Like like once colonialism got a hold of Northern Canada in the early 20th century and brought booze in, in a big way. I I think that was probably true. I don't think there's anything necessarily like linked to the environment or anything like that. Like people managed without for thousands of years. So yeah, I, maybe there's, maybe white people are maladapted to long polar nights or something. I don't know, but um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I definitely, when I was a kid, there was lots of, lots of booze in that town for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just think about the history of alcohol prohibition. You know, we had in the U.S., you had the consideration in Canada, and especially it was popular, I think, in the North. Scandinavia and Russia were the other places that flirted with it. And they seemed to be the places where people's relationship with alcohol was different than it was, say, in places like Southern Europe or Latin America, right? You know, that you basically consumed alcohol to get drunk. And, you know, the association with how light or dark, it's kind of, I don't know if it's my own theory, probably other people think that as well. But it sort of set a frame for kind of thinking about the use of maybe what was oftentimes the only popular psychoactive substance available about using in a way which was different than a more kind of normalized, consume booze with food, this sort of thing. 
Hmm. Yeah. yeah. That, that that could be. That could be. I haven't really traveled um all that much in Southern Europe, but I know what you're talking about, like having a nice dinner with wine and all that kind of thing. Yeah. I, yeah. It could be. And you're also a bit different, right? I mean, you're. I mean, just you know. I mean, just say a little more about that. Um, oh yeah, that's you know, true. And getting picked on and bullied for for different reasons. Yeah, I mean, I got albinism and almost no eyesight. So that means like like albino, like uh, platinum hair, pale skin, uh, almost blind kind of thing. So it definitely made uh, school and bullying and all that like part of my story uh, for sure. Yeah, when I was. Um, you know, when I was uh, in elementary school and stuff, they called me Ghost and Casper the Ghost and stuff like that. And I hated it, you know, <laughs> but now Ghost is a pretty cool street name. So I'm OK. I'm OK with it now. But it's just like uh-huh. back in the day, you know, I was like, no. So you were one of those like the first time you used heroin. It was like, wow, I like this stuff. It makes me feel, I don't know, normal, at ease. I'm coming back to it. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I was a, I was a depressed kid. You know, I was, I I think I was a suicidal kid. You know, I, I certainly dreamed of not being alive and, uh, you know, I never, I never really tried to hurt myself like that, but I did, I can look back in my notebooks and journals and I'm like, wow, that kid was fucked up. And, um, it stopped that, you know? So I was one Mm -hmm. of those people who, I guess I was self-medicating, but I'm not sure what the outcomes would have been for me, but for the refuge that heroin provided, you know? So I I think Mm -hmm. even though it didn't maybe look like it from the outside, at the time I was reaching for a rational choice, you know, I was reaching for a kind of a a survival, a a kind of a way to feel a little better. And, And did it put you into kind of community of fellow drug users or were you kind of using heroin, but otherwise spending a fair bit of your life in sort of non drug, non heroin using world, shall we say? Yeah, I was always in both. So I always knew a crew of people who were wired and, and was connected like that. But I often, you know, had a workplace that I was going to where people didn't know. I mean, I think my family had some idea, but I tried to, you know, minimize it and kind of tone it down a little bit. And I certainly didn't advertise, you know, like only, only a, it seems like a funny thing to say being on a podcast and saying, mm-hmm. Hey, I'm a dope fiend, but, uh, that's, this is kind of new for me. At least it's only been a few years, maybe, you know, 2018 or something when I started saying beyond a small group of friends, yeah, this is my story. Oh, is that right? It's mm-hmm. really recently the kind of coming out about the past like that and through the podcast and such. Yeah. I mean, I was an activist for sure, uh, with Vandu for longer than that. Uh, the Vancouver area network of drug users. But, um, I, I, you know, I didn't really cop to it. If I ever did an interview or something, I would be kind of nebulous about it. And so I, I was very ashamed. You know, I, I did try to keep it to myself or at least not advertise. And I learned from the activists at Van Du the power of like owning your own truth and not being ashamed of it. And it's like, finally, you get to relieve yourself of carrying this big backpack full of secrets and bullshit and uh, shame and all of that. And, and so that's been a lovely gift of activism. So Garth, I mean, you're, you're in, you're using heroin, I guess, from your late teens for uh 10, 20 years. I mean, basically during that time, are you smoking or injecting it? Are you housed all the time? Are you having legal jobs all the time? Do you get involved in, in criminal, other criminal activity apart from obtaining your drugs? I mean, what's your life like during this period? It's a little bit of everything. So yeah, I had periods where I was pretty poorly slash not housed. Um, mostly I had places. Um, I was working sometimes 
uh, sometimes white collar jobs, sometimes blue collar jobs, sometimes no jobs, you know, getting uh, welfare. Sometimes I was going to school, uh, you know, like post-secondary. And um, sometimes, I guess what you would call nickel and dime criminal activities outside of, uh, outside of the obtaining drugs, yeah. And injecting all the time. I was one of those IV drug users and I kind of thought it was like, a waste of time or a waste of drugs to do it any other way, like to smoke it or something like that. Mm -hmm. you know? So I was definitely mm -hmm. just like, get that right to the brain. And you're pretty loyal to heroin or are you mixing it with cocaine or other stimulants or benzos or things like that? Oh yeah, definitely liked uh, speed balls. I, you know, uh, heroin and crack together, that was pretty good. But yeah, heroin was the main thing for me. And, and other opioids if I couldn't get heroin. Uh-huh. And in terms of taking precautions around HIV AIDS, Hep C, uh, using a needle exchange program, what was your relationship to all that? This sort of sort of, sort of self-involvement and harm reduction? Well, I guess, you know, like back in 1990, it was still not easy to always get a new syringe. So I did mm -hmm. share with people on occasion, on desperate occasion, and we did bleach the needle. And that's you know, only so effective, but that was the harm reduction protocol at the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, cause the police would take needles off you if they found them and this and that. So, I mean, back in the day you had one needle for like a month or whatever, and you'd keep stabbing mm -hmm. that blunt thing into you and you'd have to sharpen it on a match striker. And the, you know, the rubber would wear down inside and you'd be like, uh Oh, this isn't going to be good. The numbers would wear off the barrel. Like it was bad. Uh, I mean, now in Vancouver, there's enough syringes that m most people or a lot of people can use a new one every time they inject, which is the preferred practice, which is smart because when you look under a microscope, those things get blunt really fast. A and also it's like not <laughs> not sterile anymore, um, importantly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, d doing all that definitely fucked up my veins like they're all collapsed. But um, I, I picked up harm reduction. I think the first time I really figured out what this was all about was in a civic center park in San Francisco when there was a big tent encampment there. And um, these people came around with buckets and it was a gorilla needle exchange. Like you turn in your needle and they give you a new one. It was illegal. And these people were risking arrest to do this. And when I, you know, everyone lined up and exchanged their needles pretty quick. But the guy, I remember he was just like, stay safe, man. He wasn't giving me some lecture about 12 step or quitting or nothing like that. And it's the first time I'd run into anything like that. I was completely amazed. I was like, that is yeah, a lot of respect for that. I think it was people from Prevention Point in San Francisco. Yeah, no, I remember those days, the late 80s, early 90s, New York, San Francisco, people doing little forms of harm reduction, civil disobedience, mm -hmm. and kind of modeled on what the Dutch and others in Europe had been doing even years earlier, but not facing quite the same threat of sanction from the cops and others. So your early years doing this then were more San Francisco and then moving back to Vancouver at some point? Yeah, there's a bunch of like uh, little shit punk kids like me who kind of circulated up and down the I-5 corridor. Uh, like that. I was, I was one of those kids, you know, I was playing in bands and visiting friends and, and that sort of thing. So I was there mostly Vancouver, mostly in Canada. And yeah, just like a lot of years of just using heroin. And when I would have a, mm -hmm. a nice stable connect that could uh, drop off like a product that I knew how strong it was, and I knew it would be uh, in the nineties, there was quite strong heroin in Vancouver. In fact, we had a big overdose crisis then because of it. But it also meant that like some of us were able to find a pretty stable way to 
conduct ourselves. And, and those led to long periods of my life where things were very calm. And I, I did try to be careful. So I always, if I, in the very few times I shared uh, needles, I did bleach them. But there was things I didn't know, like that uh, the virus could live in the cotton, you know, the filter mm-hmm. that you use. And we shared those completely. And it could live on the spoon. It could live on the paraphernalia. And I didn't know any of that. In fact, I didn't know that until 2019. I tried to be careful, but really, I was just very lucky. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. Hey, Joey, I got some stuff you just got to try. What is it? Pot. You know, marijuana. Oh, well, I don't know. What, chicken? Joey's in a jam. What should he do? Uh, Kate. Get a teacher. Excellent. Get a pizza. Get real. Get out of there. You got it. Let's see if Joey's that smart. I'm not chicken. You're a turkey. He's right. Drug dealers are dorks. Don't even talk to them. Cowabunga. And so when's the first time you try methadone and when's the point at which you finally begin to stick with that as your, your principal drug, basically? Mm, I, I think I'd taken methadone like just when I, you know, bought it off the street or something when there was no heroin. You know, I can't even remember pretty early on. And then I remember my, when my heroin dealer lived across the hall, I was just like, uh, it was very convenient, but it was also like, I came to this point where it's like, okay, I got to quit. And I said, where can I get methadone? He goes, oh, hey, no problem. I sell the cure as well as the disease, by which he meant he sells methadone <laughs> as well as heroin. And he, because he was on methadone, he was just, he was just a, a guy wired to opioids as well. So he sold me, you know, like a hundred mils of his methadone for 25 bucks. And so I went and locked the door, you know, like train spotting style and like, hunkered down for like what turned out to be 48 hours or so before I was opening the door and like admitting defeat <laughs> that I'd taken all the methadone <laughs> and there's no way it was going to work. So a couple of years after that, I guess I tried to get on a formal methadone program and it was so rationed um, that they wouldn't let me. They, they just said, Oh, we only have so many slots and you can't, you can't come on. And so then it was a couple of years after that, I guess. So I, I, I got on the, the program that I'm now on in 2002 and then there was mm-hmm. a bunch of years of still using heroin and then uh, kind of I, I felt like it was a step in the right direction to be using, uh, you know, prescription, not prescribed to me, but prescription opioids uh, and methadone. And then eventually I got to this place where it's, you know, mostly just methadone. And uh, so it was like mm-hmm. it was a long that was a long process. So let me bring you and the audience back to Vancouver now. I remember going up there a bunch of times in the late 90s. I had met Philip Owen, the somewhat conservative mayor of Vancouver. He had come to a conference we had organized, my organization organized at the Hoover, the very conservative Hoover Institution at Stanford, California. And I remember sitting there, it was, a, it was a conference for mostly police chiefs and deputy police chiefs, but there was this guy sitting there just kind of taking notes and taking notes. And I remember going over to him and introducing myself and asking him, well, who are you? And he goes, I'm Philip Owen. I'm from Vancouver. I said, what do you do there? He goes, oh, I'm the mayor. I said, huh? 
And here's a guy, a mayor, he had not been invited to speak. He was incredibly modest. And he's sitting there taking notes, you know, for like two days. I mean, I, I was just blown away that a sitting politician could do such a thing. And not, never that, somebody who sort of came from the more conservative side of the spectrum. And so about, you know, six, nine months later than that, I went to see Philip in his office. And he was saying, well, what should I do? We got this growing HIV problem, this overdose problem, this new powerful heroin. And I talked to him about what they were doing in Europe, about the Frankfurt and a kind of integrated approach, harm reduction approach. And he was intrigued by that. And you had this sense of dynamism in Vancouver that really things were maybe going to open up. You know, there was resistance, you know, national governments, the provincial government, but it looked like there was real promise. And at that point, the fight was over, over whether or not to open up a safe injection site. You know, I think Vancouver was one of the first places to really get you know deeply in that debate. And Philip Owen, the mayor, sort of bravely began to take the right side on that. And so, when I look at Vancouver, right, I, I think of God, Vancouver's took the lead in opening up the safe injection site took the lead in opening up the kind of heroin prescription programs that Switzerland pioneered 30 years ago and that you now find in Germany and Denmark and the Netherlands and and which have been very successful. Their, their heroin problems are a dramatic fraction of what we see, generally speaking, in, in North America. Um, you know, those programs spread not just from uh, Vancouver, Vancouver, British Columbia, but they go to other parts of British Columbia. They go to Ontario. They go to Quebec. They even managed to get into conservative province of Alberta. But in the midst of all this progressive of policy and in a country that, unlike the United States, has national health insurance, has some measure of a social safety net, nonetheless, you have an overdose fatality rate that is basically comparable or almost comparable to what it is in the U.S. And, and here we're talking in, in the second week of March, and just yesterday, the coroner's office in British Columbia comes out with a report, you know, on, on the fact that 7,000, people have died in the province, you know, in just the last few years, that 2,200 people died in British Columbia last year, and you only have a little over 5 million in the entire province. So you're talking about very high rates. And the thing I'm trying to understand is how does one explain the fact that Vancouver and BC and other parts of Canada, even though you're more advanced than the US in terms of embracing harm reduction, why are you not attaining the kind of successes we've seen in much, if not all of Europe, and, and sort of suffering more like we are in the US? Here's the key for understanding Canada. Canada has a great um, PR sense of itself. We like to broadcast at 10,000 watts into the world that we're Canada the good, that we're different, we're progressive, we're special. But this country was actually founded as a resource extraction branch plant for the United Kingdom, right? So we were, we were started because rich people in London liked to wear beaver hats. And I'm serious. That's what this place was all about at the beginning. So the colonial process of stealing the land off the people, the indigenous people who already lived here was because of this. And then forestry, mining, oil and gas. But that's still what the country is all about. And we are um, a country that's figured out that it's easier to talk nice and do the dirty than it is to just advertise that we're mean, right? So we will talk a lot about the great harm reduction programs we have in Vancouver. And we have talked for 20 years about it. But really, there's a few pilot projects in 12 square blocks of the city. We have not rolled out harm reduction thoroughly. The heroin program you talked about was a study 15 years ago. And so right now, there's 100 people that can get access to it and no more. 
The study proved, wow, prescription heroin's great, really does wonders. Imagine if they had taken that study and made a prescription heroin program so that anybody who wanted it could get it. Um, we would never have had fentanyl here. We would never have had the overdose crisis, but we didn't do that. We just talked a good game like we, oh, look how progressive we are with this program, never mentioning that it's a tiny pilot, never mentioning that we froze it and restricted it so much. So we allow there to be just enough to advertise, but not enough to really make a dent in it. And everything we get, we get by civil disobedience and fighting for. Our politicians, they may talk progressively. They may have crocodile tears for all of the dead drug users, but truly it takes civil disobedience to move the needle on this stuff. So when we had Insight, the first safe injection site in North America open, geez, 15 years ago now, maybe more, almost 20 years ago, that was because people were involved in opening underground, not even underground, just illegal, unsanctioned safe injection sites first and saying to the government, look, come and arrest us or do it yourself. You open it. We did the same thing with syringes. And right now in the last year, year and a half, we've been doing the same thing with distributing tested, clean heroin, methamphetamine and cocaine to people in very small little direct action events. But saying, look, this is what post drug war world could look like, where people could obtain the drugs they need that had been tested and were pure and were not going to cause them to fatally overdose. Is the issue that it's a lack of commitment or is it that it's just between federal bureaucracy, provincial bureaucracy, the pharmacists, the doctors, that there's just all this resistance to embracing a kind of radical new way of dealing with a tainted drug supply that's killing large numbers of people? Well, I mean, the reason that politicians speak progressively is because we force them to. The secret ingredient in Canadian drug policy is the drug user union, is the drug user movement, is that we have a strong militant drug user movement that will break unjust laws when we need to. That's why we have drug policy the way it is in Vancouver. Definitely some politicians have heard us. But, you know, Philip Owen heard us after his city hall was occupied and stuff like that, right? So, I mean, the militancy plays a role in getting to these people. And part of getting to them is they hear it and they realize, oh, we better get ahead of this. So they start talking a good game without actually doing it. This is how every movement for social justice, every movement for civil rights works. This is how all of it works is you have to you have to demand this from your government. You have to arm twist. You have to force it because they just don't they don't give you things out of the goodness of their heart or even when they're nice people, they don't really do it. I mean, if you think about how did we get the eight hour day or days off on the weekend or votes for women or any of that stuff going back 150 years, it all works like this. So to me, that is the engine that moves history. That's that's what I know. So listen, when it comes to safe supply, um, maybe give me your definition of safe supply, your model, what would the ideal safe supply situation look like and then talk about to what extent is safe supply actually operationalized on the ground today? What are the small examples of it happening right, right. now? Well, I mean, people are dying here and have been dying my whole life because we don't know what's in the drugs that we're buying and we don't know because they're illegal, right? That's the problem. And mm -hmm. to my mind, say you're doing heroin and you don't know, so it could kill you. Safe supply is just being able to access pharmaceutical grade diacetylmorphine, you know, pharmaceutical heroin. So just the same thing that you were going to do anyway, but you can get your hands on a pharmaceutical version because all the red tape and whatever is out of the way. And you can do it. You can go home and shoot it or whatever you want, like 
that's that's safe supply. It's replacing the toxic supply with the pharmaceutical version or the version that's been tested and you know what's in it and you can tell people and guarantee what's in it. And that's it. That we're not trying to get people to mm -hmm. stop using or change using or do anything or come to some meeting or go to a 12 step. No, no, nothing like that. That's the only thing. It has the biggest effect in the world because it can stop people from dying. And that to me, that is the key right. question that's before us, not whether people are using or are people wired or have whatever substance use disorder. It's is people alive or not. So that's safe supply this is a demand mm -hmm. that came out of the drug user movement here in Vancouver. But the idea was, I mean, we've been calling for an end to the drug war, decriminalization, legalization for a generation for a very long time here. But safe supply is like a reform. You know, it's like if we if we haven't won yet the revolution to end the drug war, then at least let us find the most vulnerable people and replace the supply of drugs that they're using with a pharmaceutical version. So I mean, basically, the, the, and there's the heroin prescription program that, you know, that Vancouver and now some other places have. That's a very limited version of safe supply because it is providing the clean version of heroin. Or then there's this other drug, hydromorphone, which we know in the U.S. Mm -hmm. is delouded, which is quite similar. But it's done it where you have to use it on site. You could come three times a day, can't take it home, all this sort of stuff. So it's very different than what you're talking about. On the other hand, you're also not talking about just simply selling these drugs over the counter right, and making it available to the broader public. It's really about setting up a process whereby people who are already obtaining these drugs from the illicit market, from the criminal market, can instead obtain them from a legal source. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, the heroin pilot project here in Vancouver that serves a little over 100 people, and that's it. No more can get in. And, and mm -hmm. the small pilot projects that serve uh, a few more with Dilaudid, so that's like a couple hundred people getting that stuff. And we have at least 100,000 people in British Columbia that would qualify as having being wired, like like daily opioid user or whatever, whatever you want to call it. And then way more who are like weekend warriors and people who would just encounter it. And, and that's half the people who are dying are like weekend warriors who don't have a habit or whatever. There's a very small amount of people who can get that prescribed version. And uh, what we're talking about is the, you know, asking the government to not kick in the door if we were to start a co-op or a buyer's club or a compassion club where we can just obtain the stuff for ourselves legally and distribute it among our members. That's the ask that we're putting on government right now. And when you say compassion club, I mean, that I think was the language that was used in the medical marijuana community exactly. in Vancouver, yeah. right? So yeah. it really is the, it is a medical marijuana model that we saw in Vancouver that we've also seen with kind of broader marijuana in Spain, right? A kind of cooperative collective model where members can get these drugs and there's a kind of group participation in procuring them and then in, in sharing and distributing them. Yeah, co-op. Yeah. Now, as I understand it, though, right, in the last day or two, I talked to a couple of guys in Vancouver. One's Donald McPherson. Oh, yeah, I know Donald, yeah. Who was the drug policy coordinator under four different mayors from the late 90s till, I think, 2010 or 2011, and very connected, I think, with the drug user unions in that world. And the other one was Mark Tyndall, mm -hmm. a doctor who mm -hmm. I think used to head the Center of Disease Control in British Columbia and who seems very aligned with this. And what both of them said to me, I sort of pressed them on this and sort of preparing for my discussion with you, Garth. And I said, so, you know, if you look at where the problem is, like how much it's a problem of getting the federal government to give permission 
and you know even though it's basically in Canada up to the provinces how they do health care but both of them sort of almost intimated that the fundamental problem is that they're doing the safe supply through a medical model mm-hmm. and the medical model is inher- inherently constrictive and that it's hard to find all that many doctors in even Vancouver never mind broader British Columbia who are all that sympathetic 100% to yeah. a kind right mm-hmm. I mean, definitely. It's it's difficult. The province can can do it. You know, um, I think of what happened since COVID just in the year 2021, the province got two or maybe three COVID vaccines into the arms of almost five million people in a year. Right. That's a massive public Mm -hmm. health initiative. And why do we need to have the individual doctor and have to find a willing doctor. And most doctors, it's true, don't want to do this. So that's why we have such few people able to find any kind of even prescription for Dilaudid, for example. So we we do need to move outside of the strictures of that medical model. You know, that doctor, patient, prescription, it just seems like the doctors have said we're not really willing to do this. A few are. There's a few courageous doctors and, and they don't have to break the rules. There's a little channel to do, uh, you know, a reasonable version of, of prescribing. But this is a, a problem, like I was saying, that's at least 100,000 people in our little province, probably a lot more. So it's going to take a, a real sort of mass rollout program, not a one by one by one. Now, it, it seems to me that you must be running into resistance on a few counts, right? One is the basic idea. I mean, you're just giving, going to give drugs to junkies, blah, 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 blah. You know, what, what are you doing? You expect you know, government to pay for it. The second is that Canada did have a problem, not maybe not quite as bad as the U.S., but the whole problem of the over-prescribing of opioid you know, medications, the OxyContin, OxyCodone, that sort of stuff, was an issue in Canada as well. And so the pendulum has swung so far back the other way where you had this kind of broader society fear of opioids generally, and as certainly opioids getting out there. And when one's talking safe supply, you're not talking about making it available over the counter, but is there a great fear among people on the other side of this, the opposition, about diversion, about making opioids too readily available to people who are not otherwise already using illicit opioids? Sure. I mean, people in popular culture have been scaring the shit out of everybody about heroin for decades and decades and fentanyl and all of it for a long time and for prescription opioids. I mean, we didn't have mass overdoses because of prescription opioids in Canada. We all of our overdose crises have been because of the illegal market and what's not known. In fact, some places where they didn't cut off the prescription pills so hard seem to be a little immune to the deaths, at least in the numbers of places like Vancouver. But they went hardcore on us here, following the model in the U.S. of cutting everybody off. And of course, people don't just go, oh, my prescription for oxys is gone. I guess I'll just go home now. They're like, no, I'm going to go score off the street. You know, Uh, so every time you all make a like a scary Netflix show (laughs) about about prescription opioids, we all watch it up here. Right. We mostly watch American TV in Canada and, you know, we get freaked out. That's that's where we get a lot of our ideas. You know, we our if you can believe this, one of our leading politicians in this province got all of his ideas about the overdose crisis from watching a segment on John Oliver, which pinned it right on pills. And I'm just like, dude, please, please fucking come to the neighborhood or come back because he used to even work near the neighborhood and open your eyes to what's going on. (laughs) Prescription opioids are the solution to this. We need more. 
because people get it all twisted here. They say it's an opioid crisis. It's an addiction crisis, but it's not for me. It's a death crisis. It's a toxic drug supply crisis. It's what they identify as the problem. You know, whether it's someone being wired to a substance or someone dying. And, and these are completely different things that require different solutions. I mean, I'm completely wired to methadone right now. I'm an addict. I'm an opioid addict right this second. If I stopped using methadone, I'd be puking out my mouth and my ass tomorrow morning. So I ain't going to do that. I'll probably be using it for the rest of my life and I'll be filing my taxes and going to work and doing all that shit. So what? So what? The problem isn't that I'm wired to yeah. it. That's not the problem. My life is completely fine right now. Um, but the problem is in my life is when I was wired to a very similar molecule that happened to be illegal. And so therefore was subject to the police all up my ass in my life, subject to all kinds of different changes in potency and potential overdoses and all that stuff. So when people say, oh, it's an addiction crisis, an addiction no, that's a law problem. That's a problem with laws and policies. That's a social problem, not a health problem. And right now we have a death, people dying problem. So sorting out what even problem we're talking about mm -hmm. and Canadian politicians have not got the message on that. Even the most progressive sounding, if you go and, and listen careful, you'll hear what they're trying to do. At the end of it, what they really want to announce is more treatment beds. We have this privatized recovery industry. We love, this is also another thing about Canada, the good. We love to tell you and lecture you uh, Americans about our beautiful socialized healthcare system. And you should have that, by the way. But if you're a dope fiend, you're in the private sector. You're going to a private unregulated recovery house run by some fanatic, or you're going to a private for-profit methadone clinic where you're paying extra fees. Like I pay fees every month to go to a methadone clinic. So these are like... The secret things, uh, so right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's that's true. Well, let me just step back for our, our audience because not everybody will be so conversant with this issue, but just so people understand, you know, that heroin, um, sometimes called diamorphine, when it enters the human body, it essentially becomes morphine. It feels a little different going in, but essentially in the body, it's like morphine. Methadone is a synthetic opioid, and it's one that basically is like replacing heroin use or fentanyl use with methadone or another drug called buprenorphine is basically like replacing smoking cigarettes in which you're getting, you know, you know, you're hooked on the nicotine, but getting killed by the other other crap that's in a cigarette and replacing it with a nicotine patch or a gum or an e-cigarette mm -hmm. or a pouch or a mm -hmm. snus or something like that it takes away the craving, helps people manage their lives. I mean, would you would you agree with that basic description I just laid out, Garth, or, or add or change anything oh, to sure. it? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I was at a 12-step program, they said, methadone is just trading a drug for a drug. And I said, yeah, so what? <laughs> you know, like, it's true. They're mm -hmm. both opioids, right? But, like, my life is, yeah. uh, you know, I'm a fully functional, working all the time, have great relationships with my family, not in trouble with the law, but it's all because that molecule, that opioid, happens to be on the right side of the law by, by complete ideological reasons, you know? Right. And I, I know you're doing it for dramatic effect, but, you know, some people listening to this would be going, would be saying, God, don't talk about yourself as a methadone addict. You're methadone dependent. Oh, right. You're only an addict if your dependence is actually causing harmful consequences in your life. And your being dependent upon methadone is no different than somebody else being dependent on a drug for their heart or for their cholesterol good, good or point. for their coffee in the morning. Right. Good point. And then that, that, and I would say, yes, it's true. My, the person who prescribes me methadone would say exactly what you just said. And I'd say, well, then 
addiction is a description of social and legal conditions as opposed to a description of something that's medical, right? Like if you, mm -hmm. if you cause problems in your life because you're broke or because you're doing something illegal or because you're having to score something illegal, but almost the same molecule, if it's prescribed to you, you don't have to do any of that stuff. Then all of a sudden we're describing effects which are not biochemical effects. They're not mental health effects. They're effects to do with the law and the organization of society. And this is a real piece of gaslighting that gets fitted up onto drug users is that, and I was told for years and years, you know, you have this chronic relapsing brain disorder. It's your brain that's all messed up and we got to fix you. And, and actually, you know, it may be true that there's things in my brain that are messed up, you know, like for sure, but that's not one of them. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. Hello, my name's Penny. I think people shouldn't do drugs. They can make you forget things. Like which animals have, have stripes. And your body might um, get clumsier, so you can't jump rope as good. Drugs can get you in big trouble. You could go to principal's office or go to jail. Then you can't watch TV or eat pizza. Recess is good. Hamsters are good. Birthday parties are real good. Drugs are bad. I wouldn't do drugs. You know, I sometimes have had conversations with people who have a relative, a child, a cousin, whatever, my husband, who are in a methadone program, and they're pushing them mm -hmm. to get off. And I say, why are you pushing them to get off? Because they're on methadone, because they're on a drug, because da 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 You know, and I say, stop that right now, because you yeah. could be killing them, right? That for many people, for some people, methadone's a way to get off of heroin and then stop using all opioids. But for other people, methadone becomes like a, a lifelong medication, the same way say insulin. You know, there are diabetics who could learn to control their diabetes through diet and exercise and be, you know, life changes. But for many of them, insulin is going to be a long-term or lifelong medication. How do you, Garth, how do you feel about your relationship with methadone? I mean, obviously you're grateful it's there. It's helped you stabilize your life. Are you content with the idea of being on it for the rest of your life and that this is going to be your daily medication, just like a diabetic on insulin? Or, or do you feel that it's, it's somehow undermining your health or you're worried about long long-term consequences. What's, what's your own feeling about that? I don't even think about it. Yeah, sure. I'll probably be on it for my life. That's okay. It doesn't bother me, but it did take me a long time to get over that. You know, I was always, I used to be super aware of like, how many mills am I taking? Can I grind it down a little? When am I going to be off? But now I'm just like, I don't care. This works. I, I'm just fine with it, you know? And I think the health consequences of <laughs> stopping taking it are much worse. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And I'm curious, like, if you look at two different parts of your world, right? On the one hand, people who are not really part of the drug world in a significant way, do you still encounter some stigma from them? And conversely, is there an element of the uh, heroin or fentanyl using world that sometimes looks down on people who have turned to methadone? Like, you know, you've kind of sold out or you've gone the man, you're taking the, you know, the, the, the man's chemical bracelet, you're, you know, <laughs> this sort of thing. Do you get it from both sides or not really? Um, people, people ask me like, how, how did you make that work? You know, like really from both, both of those worlds, how on earth did you make that work? And I say, well, it's just a function of when I got wired. Right. And I told you earlier in the interview, how many years it took me to sort of get across the bridge from heroin to methadone. 
heroin and methadone are a lot closer to each other than fentanyl and methadone are. That's a lot further of a bridge to go. I don't think I would be making it so well. You know, I really struggled to get across. My doctor told me not so long ago, I I never thought you would do it. Like, I never thought you would just be a guy on methadone. I thought you'd be using everything forever. You know, if I was 20 years younger, I don't know that I'd be able to use fentanyl and then mm-hmm. get across to methadone. And, and then, of course, the, the drug contamination isn't even stopping at fentanyl. There's lots of other stuff going on, carfentanyl, benzos and everything. It's It's making it very complicated. So that's mostly what I get from people is just like, how did you manage that? You know, and I, I was just like, it's just the luck. Mm-hmm. It's, it really is a, a little bit of luck um, of when I was born. You know, it's interesting. I mean, you think that there's like in the United States, there must be close to 300,000 people now on methadone or or maybe even more if you put all together methadone mm-hmm. and buprenorphine. And, you know, a large number of them, the ones you have this paradox where the people who are where it's working best for, the ones for whom it's become a daily medication, it's removed the, the issue of drugs from their lives effectively. You know, they're having stable jobs, family, the whole thing. They're the ones who are least likely to tell other people that they're using methadone oh, because sure. of the stigma yeah. associated with it, right? And, and and conversely, the people who are using methadone, but also involved still in a drug scene and a criminal scene, whatever, those are the ones who the media focuses on, the one people may see lingering around a methadone clinic, this sort of stuff. And it's part of what's given a methadone a bad rap. And, it, and I'm not sure what the answer is, because I'm not sure how one persuades large numbers of people who are successfully stabilizing methadone to become more open or to be able to tell their story to the broader population so that people get it. Yeah, I mean, up here, I know that methadone runs on the same rules as it did a long time ago. You know, that you um, most people have to go to the pharmacy every day or a clinic and have it witnessed their ingestion. You know, someone watches them drink it. You get piss tested a lot. You know, that's why people call it liquid handcuffs because of all these rules, because you can't travel very easily. You can't really go very far away from where the place where you get your methadone is. And and so I think they need to free mm-hmm. that up a lot. And they have in a lot of other countries. They're just a lot more liberal with that stuff. And they just uh, roll it out. Like when I was in Portugal for the last harm reduction conference in 2019, I went to see their little methadone van. You know, they just drive it around. <laughs> and so I was like lining up to just check it out and the guy hands me a cup of methadone and I'm like oh no I'm not from here man I don't even I don't speak Portuguese you know and he's like all right sure takes it back yeah. you know and so I said to the doctor don't yeah. ever worry about people about this making its way out from the people who are prescribed it and he's like not really because if you hold on to it too tight you create this black market for it and this way more people get it and I just thought that's a very enlightened way to look at it. We should do more of that in Canada. We should like free that stuff out to get to more people, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, Garth, I, I mean, I always struck me that the whole preoccupation of the DEA and others about the diversion of methadone, it always seemed preposterous because from a public health perspective, if people are in a methadone program and they are diverting some of their methadone and giving it or selling it to other people who cannot or will not get into a methadone program, that basically that's a net positive from a public oh, health yeah. perspective, 100%. right? And meanwhile, there's almost no market for methadone, you know, among people who are not already involved with illicit opioids mm-hmm. but when it's it's really true say everybody i know pretty much started on diverted methadone like very few people that i know have gone into the clinic signed up and their first taste of methadone comes from the official source this is how everybody finds their way there and it's wow it's great harm reduction like that. even 
You know, people worry about diversion of prescription pills. It's the same thing. There's a real harm reduction benefit to diversion. And I never realized this. I just thought of it as this shameful, illegal thing that me and my friends did. And then I started reading into the research and it shows that people are trying to help and take care of each other. And that if you're using something like methadone or maybe a, a prescribed uh, pill that isn't yours, you're not using street supply that day or that afternoon. And so it reduces the likelihood that you'll mm -hmm. die. Hey, it reduces that. It also reduces the black market. It reduces the market for, you know, the mm -hmm. gangsters and the traffickers. I mean, it reduces, you know, a whole, a whole lot mm -hmm. of things that could be positive. But the thing is this, Mark, when there's with safe supply, you're talking not just about methadone, where people can get high for methadone and you can overdose for methadone. But basically, you know, it's a relatively safer drug if you've been involved with illicit opioids before. When you're talking about making pharmaceutical grade heroin or amphetamine or cocaine or even, you know, low dose fentanyl available. The issue is there, it seems like the potential for diversion to others who may not be current users or who may just be playing around. Then there's the risk of it getting out there broadly in a way that, you know, we hold now Purdue Pharma for, you know, over promoting. I mean, isn't there a risk there? And how does one control for that? Or do you just not worry about it? I mean, everybody can already get drugs really easily, right? Like, you know, I was able to get drugs back in the day underage before I could go legally buy booze, you know, like, you can get drugs anywhere in North America really easily. You can order them over the internet. You know, it's like, it's already the genies out mm -hmm. of the bottle. This is already out there. So if you have a safe supply, a clean supply, and it gets diverted, then maybe the person who would otherwise be taking the, uh, the dodgy thing is getting something that's safer for them. You know, the same rules apply. But mm -hmm. if, if a country is going to go to um, a safe supply or a regulated market instead of a black market, right? Like we have an unregulated drug market now. So anyone can get unknown substances at any time. If you regulate it, like the liquor store near me, um, it, they check your ID. They only run certain hours. They can't sell stuff over a certain alcohol proof. You know what I mean? Like the, the government puts rules on it. And so mm – -hmm. If you had just illegal anything goes um, a moonshine being sold by the guy in the alley, it'd be more dangerous. And kids or anybody else who is, I don't know, moonshine naive would be able to get a hold of it more easily. So it's like regulation mm -hmm. gives yeah. the community, the public, the society more control over these substances because right now they're completely everywhere right. and uncontrolled. I mean, it's not it doesn't solve the problem entirely. Right. Because, I mean, the, the great problem now is involves fentanyl, which it's so easy, you know, to overdose and die from. I mean, with heroin, I think most people who died of a quote unquote heroin overdose, it was typically really a fatal drug combination mm -hmm. involving other drugs, combining, you know, heroin with booze or with benzos. With fentanyl, even though most fentanyl is now combined with, you know, other drugs as well, it's typically the fentanyl, I think, is as my understanding is that, the you know, it can, in fact, kill you all by itself in a way that no other opioid that was previously out there would do. And then, of course, you just have people, you know, mixing drugs, doing dumb stuff, you know, not taking precautions. So obviously cleaning up the drug supply and making it legit in that respect, it would solve a big and probably majority of this problem, but it would not eliminate the problem. You know, I was doing fentanyl. I was doing fentanyl before it was cool. <laughs> I mean, I was doing fentanyl before it was mm -hmm. on the street. Like we did it from 
the patches, the dermal patches, and you can break them down and do them however you want. You don't have to do them as directed, right? But we we get a hold of these things. And when I very first heard about it, like this is a long time ago now, and everyone said, wow, it's like supposedly 10 times stronger than heroin or something. I was like, great, sign me up, let's yeah. try it. But nobody was right. overdosing on that because you knew, yeah. uh, you knew what you were getting. The way that people are overdosing on fentanyl now is because very small quantities of it can cause a big effect. So if you're making up a batch, maybe you haven't distributed all the grains of fentanyl evenly through your drug batch. So you sell someone a flap of dope that has got more fentanyl in it than the rest of the batch or whatever, right? It's like the concentration and the potency, those together are the problem. Fentanyl in and of itself is, uh, albeit powerful, it's an opioid, right? So like if we could assure people, Mm -hmm. um, here's here's what's in it. Here's fentanyl. There's no cut. There's nothing else. And here's the potency and here's how much. Then you have a much less uh, likelihood of these kind of fentanyl overdoses. And still what you see right now is mostly poly drug overdoses, like a big amount of overdoses that are recorded by the coroner in Vancouver are people who've um, been drinking at the same time, you know, or people who for whom there's fentanyl in the rock or something else. Mm -hmm. So in your model, say supply, who's paying for the drugs. I mean, when drug users are buying on the street, they have to raise the money one way or another to pay for it. Would they still be paying for under safe supply or would it be free or how would that work? The most immediate thing, the Compassion Club model of the co-op that we're looking to build, it'd be us. We'd pool our money or raise it and uh, supply ourselves because we just don't think yet that the government's interested in doing that. Um, so, I mean, that that's what that's what we're trying to do right now. And maybe it depends on how it's supplied for. Like if you're doing a prescription heroin program, yeah, the government should pay for that. You know, like the government, I believe governments Mm -hmm. everywhere should pay for pharmaceuticals. I believe pharmaceutical companies should be nationalized because they're strategic national interest, a public interest, a health thing. And they shouldn't have cartoon villains at the top of them (laughs) profiteering off everybody. I think we would have avoided all of the big mm-hmm. panic and response of the last 20 years on oxys if we had been able to have national control instead of just wild west free market style uh, pharmaceuticals. Mm. Well, Garth, let me ask you, with your Compassion Club model, I mean, I presume you're buying the drugs on the dark net, you're testing them before you're making them available to the members? Yeah, that, I mean, that's what's happening now. But if if we have applied, the, the Drug User Liberation Front, which is the one, the group that has put on five of these giveaways, these little events where a very small amount of uh, heroin, coke, or meth is given to a very small amount of people that are in our groups as a sort of active civil disobedience, as a, as a sort mm-hmm. of like a little, here's what a possible future could look like. So yeah, those are sourced from the dark web by a couple of very courageous people. But the um, Compassion Club model, if, if the governments would deign to permit this to occur, you would legally be able to purchase uh, diacetylmorphine or whatever off of some pharmaceutical company because you'd now you'd be you'd be into the, what something that's legal, you know. But I mean that's also the question, right? Because I think you know the libertarian model, right, basically says let people, adults, 
buy whatever they want from the company that produces it. And there will be no criminal laws involved, except maybe if you're selling to kids. And you'd have civil liability. So, you know, the companies would only be responsible if they were selling something other than what they claimed it to be. And and I thought with, with Safe Supply, we're talking about something a little more limited than that, where the people who are accessing it, even if one's not using a medical model where doctors are prescribing, at, at the very least, there's some constraints. It's not just go on the, not the, the dark web, but go on the internet and get it. Or are you actually saying, go all the way? Like, are you closer to being a, a libertarian in your approach when it comes to safe supply? Well, I mean, safe supply is a form of triage, right? Like, ultimately, we want to end the drug war and you have like regulated access to the substances in the same way, you know, not necessarily the exact identical mechanisms, but in the same way that we ended alcohol prohibition and now you have alcohol. Personally, I don't like the libertarian model of companies can just make a fortune marketing alcohol to everybody. Like, I think the hugely pro-capitalist marketing of the way that we and you came out of prohibition to the enrichment of a few, that's not mm -hmm. for the public good. So we don't need to make all those same mistakes again. You know, and I think there's needs to be like a really adult uh, society wide conversation about how we want to come out of it and who we want the winners and losers to be. Yeah. I mean, of course, it's funny because I, I find myself when people ask me if I, if I support, you know, full legalization, and I'll typically say, look, I'm not a libertarian. I'm not a free market guy. I actually do worry about opioids becoming or, or some other drugs becoming so widely available or potentially promoted in ways that you actually increase the number of people in the country who are addicted by some significant percentage. I don't think it's at the level that our opponents fear, you know, the sort of Sodom and Gomorrah, the, you know, the, the sky's falling. But I do think it's it's problematic. Look what's happened with food, you know, with, with, you know, powerful corporations, you know, combining sugar, fat, salt into all these, you know, types of, you know, very attractive uh, uh, and not very healthy food products that we, and you have this you know, extraordinary mm -hmm. transformation, you know, in obesity and the human body. And health, right? Oh, man. Opioid McNuggets. Bring on the opioid McNuggets, Ethan. I'll <laughs> try yeah, you no, know, I hear you. you know what I mean? But I mean, I that, you. you hear me. So, and so, I, you know, that's the thing about how, I mean, it always seems to me the $64,000 question legalization debate is how do you get as many people who are currently engaged in the illicit market, in the criminal market, how do you get them to shift into a legal supply situation as much as possible without making these substances much more broadly available to the broader society, including to people who, you know, might you because it's always a matter of a spectrum of degree. I mean, yes, it's true that if you really want to get these things today, you can, but lots of people aren't just because they're illegal or they're less available or because you need a prescription or what have you, right? Sure. And I mean, don't you? I, no, I mean, I, really. I, I think there's a whole bunch of possible outcomes of this, right? And I, I, I roll back the tape and think um, the drug war is what brought us really strong opioids, right? That's from the drug war. And in Canada, the first drug arrest was in 1908, and it was for opium. And that's what people used to do is smoke opium. And as they've been arresting and chasing drug users for all the, you know, 114 years or whatever since then, um, they've just created this arms race of stronger and stronger and stronger drugs. So the very first thing we have to do is stop the arms race or we're going to have like space astro dope any moment now. You know what I mean? We're, it won't stop here. It'll keep going and going. So it's like mm -hmm. we're now in a trade-off of harms, right? So like you, we have to 
organize ourselves so that we stop giving the police this excuse to inflate their budgets, get this paramilitary equipment, go and occupy black neighborhoods all over North America and all that. And we have to stop the escalation of the potency and the body count. So what do we get in trade of that? Do, do we get more people wired? I don't know. We're getting more people wired right now with the illegal market because something that we're doing in our society, something about how we're organizing this late stage capitalist apocalypse is really alienating and traumatizing to people. And a lot of people find a little solace in opioids. So if we're really worried about not getting more people wired, then we're going to have to start thinking about what is driving it to begin with. I'm not just talking about weekend warrior stuff. I'm talking about what's at the yeah. root of it. Got to have to stop traumatizing people. Going to have to stop asking people to do these Herculean yeah. efforts to just survive, to work three jobs, blah, 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 blah. You know, like, going to have to make a nicer society because otherwise, how can you blame people for finding that little warm hug that is opioids? Of course it makes sense, you know, or using methamphetamine to keep up with the, mm -hmm. the pace of maybe their workplace or whatever. Mm-hmm. Hey, Garth, let me switch subjects for a second. You know, just to give our audience a greater sense of Van Du and the drug user union and, and the feeling of it and what sort of community it provides. I mean, they're obviously central to your doing your podcast, Crackdown, you know, helping produce it and to come up with ideas and, and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, I think for, for a lot of people listening, they'll wonder, so when you talk about, you know, drug users hanging out, when you talk about this union, I mean, obviously there's an ad advocacy element. But when you go to a gathering, a Van Du gathering, are people like, you know, is it worked up about what's going on with Russia and Ukraine right now, as you would see any place else in society? Or are they more caught up in their own lives around this scene? No, I mean, yesterday I was in a meeting of the British Columbia Association of People on Methadone. I'm on the board of that. And um, we did talk actually about Ukraine, you know, and and Russia and uh, the president of the group was just like had no good things to say about Putin, you know, and uh, don't get me wrong. It is a war. And we we have this um, storefront space on East Hastings Street here that's got, you know, a big room where we hold meetings and a few side offices where we can hold board meetings or do work on the computer. There's a safe injection room in the back. And all over the walls are pictures of our dead members. And it's just like the walls are full of more pictures than you can ever imagine. Because, I mean, if you're if you're a Vandu member, you're a member forever. Like after you die, whatever, you're will never forget you. So there is constant death all around us. The building is crowded with ghosts. So we try to organize the next piece of advocacy, mm -hmm. the next campaign, do the next civil disobedience, have the next meeting with some government officials to try and gently lobby them on a small reform um, with all this in the background. And people still have space to think about the, the broader world, you know, the threats of war, the threats of the far right. You know, Canada just had this terrible uh, month of a convoy of people on the very far right driving across the country pretending to be truckers and all this stuff about vaccines and everything. Yeah. And so we felt that a lot because, I mean, we're into harm reduction, we're into public health. So we know all of that's bullshit. You know, we we know COVID's real and we want the vaccines and we we want to take care of each other that way. Uh, we know we're more vulnerable. So we keep, we keep an eye on all that stuff because we know the rest of the world affects us too. 
You know, I'm curious, you mentioned Vandu, the drug users group that Ann Livingston and Bud Osborne started, you know, almost 25 years ago. You've mentioned the Drug Users Liberation Front, which is doing civil disobedience around safe supply and making drugs available through a Compassion Club model. You also mentioned a group of methadone activists. And I'm curious, how does the methadone activists relate to the other two? And are the group of the methadone activists people who are mostly using methadone and still illicit mm -hmm. drugs? Are there people on methadone who just need to keep arm's length from the people who are actively involved with the illicit drug use just in order to, you know, keep it straight? Um, or are they fully engaged in supporting the, uh, you know, the objectives of Vandu and the Drug Users Liberation Front? Yeah, the people in the methadone group span it all. You know, so there's people who are just on methadone. There's people who are still using. There's people who are on Suboxone and all the other kinds of things that you can get prescribed. And, you know, people make an effort to not use in sight of people in that group. You know, they try to be careful and, you know, if someone's tr trying really hard not to use, not to not put that sort of thing in, in someone's face. So, uh, but we're all part of Vandu, right? Like all of these people, we meet in the, in the Vandu space. Uh, we're members of the drug user union. Uh, we're all part of the same movement. So um, we broadly share the same goals. It's just that the world of methadone, you get so wrapped in all the rules and regulations. It's like you need to break off the conversation to have a separate a chat about it in a separate group, you know? Yeah. So, Garth, in your own life, I heard you mention someplace that you had gone back and you're working on a PhD now? That's right. Yeah. Uh, University of British Columbia. Do you have a yeah. subject? What's it, what, what is it? It's an interdisciplinary of journalism and public health. And you have a dissertation? Uh, I'm just into that phase now. So I'm about halfway through. Yeah. And will it be a drug theme? You think? Yes. Yeah. It's it's uh, it's something on the uh, something on the overdose crisis, you know, and how we uh, represent ourselves and tell mm -hmm. stories and form partnerships on on journalistic enterprises. Yeah. No, I heard you make a comment somewhere on one of the things I was listening to about you actually have a lot of respect for the academics. You just wish their stuff oh, could yeah. get out I mean, there a bit more. Uh, you know, like the 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 literature and the studies and the research around harm reduction and drug use is phenomenal it's like liberating there's there's great information in there um you know social theory uh writing on policing all that stuff is fantastic it's just so much of it is written so dense uh you know that you need i guess you need people to get on the mic and popularize that and maybe that's part of what my job is but uh i sometimes wish that academic writing style yeah. hadn't been so embedded into people and you could just talk like a human instead of a weird uh, these sentences that are a half page long and 16 clauses, you know. Well, let me just thank you. I mean, I want to first congratulate you for having, you know, you know, launched this podcast with your colleagues in Vancouver and for your activism and the great work you're doing and the impact you're having. And uh, and thank you for taking the time to, uh, you know, uh, spend a few hours Arizona, with me on Psychoactive. Thank you for having me and, and congrats on the podcast. And thank you for talking to our mayor like 20 or 25 years ago or whenever it is that you met him at that conference because I'll bet you that helped. I'll bet you there's people people who are around today. I think I know some of them because of the changes in policy that conversations like the one you had with Philip Owen uh, helped create. And, and also just thank you for your career in organizing on this stuff. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-ZERO. 
Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. <laughs>